0: Um, The reason why we do a Go Forward Fund is because I've always had a faith that God wanted us to punch above our weight as a church. I've always had a faith that he wants us to move forward in a way that's larger than we actually have numerically in our local church. Go Forward Fund is a way of doing that. For the last 10 years, this is who we've been. We've been a church that's been making a difference globally. Um, and locally, and building forward for the glory of the Lord for some time. It's wonderful. The few things then we're going to be giving to this year. First of all, building locally. Simon Walker and Michelle. We're going to be sending them to the states. Everybody's excited about that. Two people are excited about that. They must be related. Okay. So Simon Walker is going to the states, which we're excited about. Caring regionally, we've got Sovereign Grace Care and CAP, which Christine has just talked about so wonderfully. And then internationally, we're looking at International Care Ministries, ICM, that we've been funding for many years in the Philippines, and also Sovereign Grace Church Global Missions. We are doing a lot of stuff around the world as Sovereign Grace Churches, So this gives us an opportunity to do more. There are way more opportunities that we have around the world and locally than we can actually afford to do. And so this fund is about trying to do those things and seeing how we go for the glory of the Lord. So please consider over the next couple of weeks. I'm going to be preaching on it next week. And we never take an offering that we're not going to be taking up time to preach on biblically. And we're going to be preaching on it next week. But even consider over the next two weeks, what part do you want to play in this? Because I believe we all want to play a part. And one of the exciting things for us as a leadership team is over the years, nearly everybody's given to it. And because nearly everybody's given to it, we've ended up with a lot of funds to be able to really serve around the world. So please really consider how the Lord would want you to play a part in this. Amen? Okay, great. This, uh, this one here is buzzing. Do you want to turn it off? That stops it buzzing. This is all I know about PA. This is my gift limit. Sign me up for the team. I mean, this is is a breakthrough moment in my life. All right, let's go ahead and turn in our Bibles, please, to Ephesians chapter 2. We are presently in a short five-part series together entitled The Race of Our Lives, and I thank God for the feedback I've been getting over the last few weeks from you individually, but also your group leaders just explaining what a good time you're having. That thrills me to know that God's word is going forward. In our midst, And today we're going to be looking at running together, what it really means to run as packs and what it really means to run together for the glory of the Lord. And so let's look at Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to be examining just a few opening verses from 19 to 22. This is the word of the Lord. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. Lord, I thank you that you have called us to such an incredible race. You've called our names. You've called our numbers. Not one individual that you have called is exempt from the race. You've given us a part to play and a racetrack to run. Lord, did you help us to learn this morning about how important it is that we do that together? Give us grace, Lord. Give us ears to hear. For your glory. Amen. You know, in this race, as we've looked at for the last few weeks, it's so important to understand what type of race that we're in, isn't it? Listen, this is a picture of a race that we are not in. That is not... Us, yeah. You know, I think sometimes when we think of the Christian faith, that's what we kind of imagine that we are by ourselves. There's no crowd, no one looking on. We're just running for our life, and we want to make a difference, but we're just kind of going for it for Jesus. It's Jesus and me. But that's not actually what the Bible really gives us a picture of when it comes to our race. Our race is far more like this. Okay, that's our race. That is the tough mutter. That's something that some crazy people in this church have actually done. You run about 16 kilometers of horror, 25 obstacles like that. And as you can see, that, I think, biblically is far more akin to what the Christian race is like. It is hard. It is dirty. There are obstacles. And basically, if you're by yourself, you ain't going to make it. You're called to be running together. We, We need each other. This is a race. Where there are obstacles, where there is dirt, where there is difficult, difficulty. and accordingly, whenever you see the race then in the Bible, one of the emphasis you get time and time again is that you're going to need each other. We're all going to need each other to run in this great race. And that's what you see right here in Ephesians chapter two, verses 19 through 22. See, in Ephesians chapter four through six, Paul tours us around this great race. He tours us around this. He explains to us what this is really going to be like for the glory of the Lord. And he tells us in chapter 4 verse 1, Therefore I, Paul, urge you to live in a manner worthy of the gospel that you've received. He's pointing us back to the opening three chapters of the book. The opening three chapters of this glorious book, Paul preaches to us the gospel again and again and again. He helps us see, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. You were lost, you were unforgiven. But through Jesus Christ, you've been made alive. You've been forgiven of your sin, adopted into his family, redeemed. Heaven is going to be your home. And then he tells us at the start of chapter 4, I urge you then to live in a manner worthy of the calling that you received, worthy of the gospel. Run it out. You don't earn it. Jesus Christ earned it. But you do exhibit it. You model it. You run your race. And in chapters 4, 5, and 6 of this great letter, Paul outlines what this race is like. He explains to us that in this race, we're going to be pursuing holiness. We're going to be actually dealing with sanctification. We're going to be putting off the old self, being renewed in our mind and putting on the new self. In this great race, we're going to need to play our parts in the building of the local church. Everybody's been given gifts, different things that they've been given to us by the Lord. Everybody has a part to play within this race. And within this race, as he explains, we need to keep the main thing, the main thing. We need to apply the gospel to each and every area of our lives. And so he spends time in these chapters explaining to us, hey, listen, you need to think about your marriage in light of the gospel, your parenting in light of the gospel, your work in light of the gospel, your speech in light of the gospel. In this race, all those things are going to be important. He outlines for us this great race, but if you read it in isolation, you would just come away thinking, man, this race is going to be hard. It is. And that's why in Ephesians chapter 2, Prior to touring us around this great race, he tours us around a great means. A great means of grace that God has given us to ensure that we run well in the race. And what he shows us in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 19 through 22 is that that great means is each other. It's each other. And so he tells us, you were once foreigners and strangers and aliens. You didn't know each other. You didn't care about each other. But now through faith in Jesus Christ, he's building us together as fellow citizens, members of the household of God. God knows that this race isn't going to be easy. And he knows if we're going to run well in this race, because it looks like that, you're going to need people. You're going to need others bringing out their arms and pulling you in at different times. You're going to need others cheering you on at different times. You're going to need others to help you each and every step of the way. If we are truly going to run well in this race, then quite simply, Sovereign Grace, we are going to need each other. And that's what I want to drive home today more than anything. You ain't designed to do this by yourself. We're not designed to run this Christian race like lone rangers for Jesus. There are no lone rangers in the Bible. We're designed by God to link arms and run together because we need each other. Theologian Bruce Milne puts it this way. He says, the Christian life is inescapably corporate. Teaching on Christian holiness is frequently concentrated almost exclusively on the holy man or the holy woman to the neglect of the biblical concern for the holy people or the holy church. The ideal of the all-competent Christian, able to meet every spiritual challenge and live a life of unbroken sin, has undoubtedly produced remarkable examples of Christian character. But as every Christian counsellor knows, this emphasis has driven many to a lonely struggle ending in despair or disillusionment, or even worse, the hypocrisy of a double-standard life. This whole approach needs re-examination. The bulk of New Testament teaching on the Christian life, including major sections on holiness, occur in letters to corporate groups, to churches. All the major exhortations to holy living are plural. Similarly, all the New Testament promises of victory are corporate, in other words, the apostles envisaged the Christian life and Christian sanctification in the context of loving and caring fellowship. J.R. Packer then continues He says, We should therefore not think of our fellowship with other Christians as a spiritual luxury, an optional addition to the exercise of personal devotions. Fellowship is one of the great words of the New Testament. It denotes something that is vital to a Christian's spiritual health and central to the church's true life. Listen, the church will flourish and Christians will be strong only when there is fellowship. The church will flourish and Christians, you the runners in the race, will be strong only, only when there is fellowship. If we truly want to run well in this race that we've all been assigned to, then we are going to need those around us. That's why very deliberately Sovereign Grace Church is a place built with small groups. That's why very deliberately we put everybody in a small group and we ask people to commit to a small group because, quite frankly, fellowship is so very important. And true biblical fellowship, by very definition, it can't happen by yourself. (laughs) People try, and usually they think they're doing a great job of it, because no one there is to critique the great job they're doing. It's not designed to be run by yourself, and you cannot do it by yourself. True fellowship requires other people for it to be fellowship. Otherwise, it's just Lone Ranger. But likewise, true biblical fellowship, I think it becomes really problematic to 150 plus people. It becomes too difficult. When you examine all the one another's of scripture, you realize, okay, I'm called by God to be devoted to one another. Oh my, there's 163 people in my church. How am I going to be devoted to all of them? What's it going to look like? It's going to be really hard. So we join a small group. Because in small groups, or gospel communities as we call them, true biblical fellowship really can take place. Small groups are places where we can know and be known by those around us. They're places where we can actually do life together, where we can practice the one another's of scripture. We can weep together and rejoice together and confess our sins to one another and care for one another and love for one another. They're places where we can actually practice that type of living. They're places where we can apply God's word to our lives and actually fan into flame these words and apply them to our lives. And they're places where we can literally spur one another on to love and good deeds, to keep going, keep running, don't give up. The places where we get to do that. In our context and how we set up Sovereign Grace Church, small groups are vital to our ministry. And so here's the question I want us to examine this morning. If small group relationships are so important to our race, then how are you and I going in playing our parts in the building of our small groups? Let me say that again, because that's the question. If small group relationships are so important to our race, then how are you and I going in playing our parts in the building of our small groups? Now listen, this question is not designed to be corrective in nature. I'm not bringing this as some type of adjustment to our church of, oh my goodness, no one's going to groups, we just need to encourage them. No, people are going to groups, the groups are doing real well. It's not designed to be corrective in nature, then, but it is designed by the grace of God to be evaluative in nature. Because in our busyness, it's so easy to forget why we're even doing it. And when we forget why we're even doing it, it's so easy to become an attender rather than a builder. And attenders, they never experience the joys of that. That's experienced by Builders. People that are giving themselves to it and then enjoying the fellowship that God gives in the midst of a race. Now I'm aware you ask a question like what I've asked in terms of how are we going in the building of our small groups. It can be hard to get our hands around, right? It's hard to evaluate. If I just press pause there and stop the sermon, and you go back to group this week, and your leader asks you, it's going to be like, yeah, I think uh, uh, not bad, five out of 10 six out of ten. I'm not sure. It's hard to evaluate. So I've got four questions that I want to ask us this morning that will help us get our hands around maybe how we're really going and playing our parts in building a small group. And as I ask these questions, here's what I want you to do. I want you to assess yourself, not your group. (laughs) It's easy to assess your group and give them a fail. And it's easy to assess yourself and pass yourself. Here's what I want you to do before the Lord as you go through these questions. Assess yourself. Ask yourself this question throughout. If my whole group gave themselves to this group like me, what would this group be like? Here's then question one. How am I going, how am I going, in actively playing my part in the care of my group? How am I going and actively playing my part in the care of my group? See, care is something so important on this race. It's so important you have, you've got eyes to see people around you and you're willing to put your hand out and pull them up. It's difficult at different times. And if we're going to be really builders of our groups and not merely attenders or worse, consumers, the way we position ourselves towards our group in terms of caring for those around us is of vital importance. That's going to be our story, care is so very important. You see, as Christians, we are called to be followers of Jesus Christ, aren't we? I think sometimes, particularly in the West, we don't get that bit. But here's here's just the reality. Okay, When you became a Christian, you bowed the knee to Jesus, and this is what you said. Okay, Jesus, I'm all in. You are my king. I'm going to take up my cross and follow you. That ain't a bumper sticker on the back of your car. That is the entirety of your life. That's not just a sort of motto that goes with your life of, I'm doing my thing, but I happen to be a Christian. No, you've handed your whole life over to Jesus. And one of the first things he tells us to do then is, hey, listen up, as Patrick described so well. We are then his hands and feet. I want you to be my hands and feet. Where is Jesus to be seen in the world today? Right here. We are his hands and feet. If you've decided, hey, I don't really want to do that, then I want to help you see, then you're not behaving as a Christian because a Christian is a doing word and what we do is we care. We are his ambassadors. We are his representatives. We are his hands and feet. John Piper says it this way. I love it. He says, the brethren of Jesus are the church. If you persecute the church, you persecute Jesus. Jesus. And if you love and show affection to the church, you show love and affection to Jesus. The church is his body. It is the physical form of his presence on earth. And so touch the church and you touch the very body of Christ. Jesus Christ then is still so very present in the world today. Where? In his body. Where is Jesus Christ present in the world today? Take a look around. Literally, take a look around. There he is! He's right there. We are his hands and feet. We are called by God to be his hands and feet. That's why in Romans 12, Paul exhorts us this way. He says, Listen, let your love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly and never be conceited. But Paul, I'm really busy, I've got a lot on. He's going to look right back at you and say, no, this is a command of God on your life. When he became a Christian and you became his hands and feet, this is what you're called to do by the grace of God. Because people around you in this race, they need you. They need you to show hospitality. They need you to outdo one another with showing honor. They need you to weep with them. They need you to live in harmony with them. They're commands. We are his hands and feet. And my friends, I submit to you where that starts in our church is in your small group. So, with that small group of people that you really get to know, that you see three weeks out of every four weeks of your entire life. There's a lot of hours going into those relationships. I remember when Emma and I lived in America in the year 2000, we joined a church called Covenant Life Church. And back then, it was quite simply the most amazing church that I'd ever been in or seen in my life. And a big part of that was because of the way they applied the gospel. And because of the way they read things like Romans 12 and then actually sought to passionately model them in their lives, it was, it was provoking. One couple we got to know was a couple called Bill and Cindy Beduris. We saw them most weeks coming to church and, and this is just a brief snippet of her story and her interaction with her small group or care group as they call them. My husband was diagnosed with a severe case of chronic fatigue syndrome in 1988 and has not been able to work since 1990. With each passing year, he's become worse and has gotten to the point where his life has no resemblance to normality as you and I know it. He cannot walk for more than three to four minutes at a time and due to other difficulties, has a very difficult time interacting with me or others. He literally couldn't speak anymore. Bill lives with a tremendous amount of pain throughout his entire body And is always exhausted and weak, feeling like he has the flu. This past spring he was very close to being bedridden and I needed to take off close to seven weeks to care for him. Bill and I have been part of the Merriman's group for over three years. They have excelled in caring for us. Over the years I've been brought to tears on many occasions by their expressions of love and the sacrificial ways they have demonstrated it. One couple provided us a large sum of money so that Bill could see a specialist in California. The care group has fasted and prayed for Bill and I for over a week on two different occasions. They took up a collection for us and we were able to purchase a motorized scooter for Bill so that he could get around and do a few other things to improve his quality of life. During this recent leave of absence that I took to care for Bill, they provided numerous meals, coordinated meals from other care groups and ran many errands for us. I simply cannot thank God enough for my care group. You know, as I reminded of that testimony this week in preparation for this message, I couldn't help but be freshly provoked by what she was experiencing. That really is doing life together. And in God's kindness, I thank God that we have many, many stories like that in this local church as well. People being well cared for and helped and aided in the midst of what they're walking through in this tough mud array. And yet, I still think it's nonetheless a good question to ask ourselves personally. How am I going in actively playing my part in the care of my group? And listen, don't assess your group. Assess yourself. How are you going? You are the hands and feet of Jesus. How are you going? Question two. How am I going... In faithfully positioning myself in my group for growth? How am I going in faithfully positioning myself in my group for growth? See, this is something I think is often overlooked, but it is overlooked at our own peril. As we've seen over the last few weeks, we are in the race of our lives, are we not? It is a full on race. It is all out. It is all in. As my wife tells me, let us run hard and let us get to heaven tired. Yes, let us run hard. Let us get to heaven tired. Let's be all or nothing, pedal to the metal or go home. Let's give it everything we have. The righteous of the Hebrews says it this way, therefore. Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. I I love it. It is motivating. I need to get it plastered in my house somewhere because it is all in. You have been called by God's grace to run in the race. The stadium around has been filled with a great cloud of witnesses cheering us on and calling us home. We've been called to run. And yet, pay attention to the words, make no mistake, to run well in this race. We need to lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Too often overlooked, too often misunderstood, too often not paying attention. But The text clearly says there is something that is weighing you down, something that will stop you running, something that will slow you and distract you. It is every weight and sin which clings so closely. And so you must lay it aside. If we're going to run well in this type of race, you don't want to be carrying a fridge on your back or a house on your back. You need to be lean. You need to be ready. You need to be keen. So he tells us, listen, identify sin in your lives, identify weight, lay it aside, put it off. Well, the question then is, well, how do I do that? And the Apostle Paul tells us how to do that. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22 through to 24, he tells us exactly how to put off sin, which clings so closely. He expects us, as he says in Ephesians 4, 22, to attend the divine changing room. That's what it is. It is the Trinity Susanna moment of the New Testament. He attends the divine changing room. And this is what he tells us in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22 to 24. He says, listen, this is how you do it. You put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And you're to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and you're to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. That's the divine change room. That's how you change. That's how you do it. You put off the old self, the sin which clings so closely. You get renewed in your mind, understanding. I never even saw it probably before, but now I do and I hate it. And now I put on the new self. I put on Christ. I put something off. I put something on. That's what we call sanctification. The process of putting something off, being renewed in our mind and putting something on. It is Christian growth. And yet what is so often missed in that sentence is the understanding that in my Bible, Ephesians chapter 4 is after Ephesians chapter 2. That's deliberate. Because what Paul is helping us see in Ephesians chapter 2 is this race is corporate. You need each other. You need to run in packs. So when we get to Ephesians chapter 4, we need to understand this isn't a personal thing. This is a group thing. Even dealing with my sin is a group thing. Even seeing my sin is a group thing. Even being renewed in my mind is a group thing. Even putting on my and putting on the new stuff. It's something we do in groups. That's why Sovereign grace we have growth groups. Rather than just growth night by yourself, Jesus and you. Because that ain't what the Bible talks about. The Bible talks about running together. You need each other. You need each other's help in these things. And my friends, as I was reviewing it this week, I was just reminded, I think by the Lord of just how important it is that we run together if we're really going to put aside every weight and sing which clings so closely. See, the harsh but true reality of sin is that it is deceitful and it will deceive you and it will blind you from even seeing it at all. There will be parts of your life that you're running around with a fridge on your back, but you won't even see the fridge because you'll just think, no, that's part of my life. That's my culture. That's who I am. That's why in the Bible it's so easy to see a speck in someone else's eye and yet struggle to see the log in our own eye. Have you ever thought about that? We see sin in other people, like pin perfect, don't we? Particularly if you're a parent, you see sin in your kids. Like, man, I'm a genius. But it can be so hard to see the log that's smacking them in the face all the time. You know what I'm saying? We can see other people's sin, but we can sometimes struggle to see our own. And without then faithful, kind, loving people helping us see our sin, that are prepared to love us enough to actually speak truth to us and make comment, we don't see it. In fact, actually, we're just like a man described in the following story. It's in C.J. Mahaney's book, Humility. This is the story. He says, as I sat with my family at a local breakfast establishment, I noticed a finely dressed man at an adjacent table. His Armani suit and stiffly pressed shirt coordinated perfectly with a power tie. His wingtip shoes sparkled from a recent shine. Every hair was in place, including his perfectly groomed mustache. The man sat alone, eating a bagel as he prepared for a meeting. As he reviewed the papers before him, he appeared nervous, glancing frequently at his Rolex watch. It was obvious he had an important meeting ahead. The man stood up, and I watched as he straightened his tie and prepared to leave. And immediately, I noticed a blob of cream cheese attached to his finely groomed mustache. He was about to go into the world, dressed in his fineness, with cream cheese on his face. I thought of the business meeting he was about to attend. Who will tell him? Should I? What if no one did? It is one of those cringeworthy stories, isn't it? As You just imagine this man going out all suited up with a cream cheese on his face, but no one knows to tell him. Well, my friends, in the Christian life, without close friends who love us enough more than fear us telling us things, we all walk around with cream cheese on our face and we don't even see it. It tells us in Hebrews 3 that, des- that sin will deceive us. What's the remedy? People, other people, helping us see its deceptive effect in our life. And I'm so grateful as a pastor and as a Christian that I have had people in my life many, many times love me more than they're afraid of me. And willing then to talk about things and to help me see just maybe where I might have cream cheese on my moustache as I enter into the world. I remember then when we lived in the United States um, 20 years ago now, but I remember I was pretty uh, raw in marriage and raw in the Christian faith, really. Sanctification had not been taking place much in my life and so it probably wasn't hard to see cream cheese to everybody apart from myself. And so I remember we'd been there a few weeks. We lived with a family, a beautiful family. They came, if you remember, last year and got to introduce them to you. And they just had such a big effect on my life. And that all started one night when we went to Macca's, which is my favourite place, but even better in America because the portions are massive. So we went to Macca's just for hot fudge Sundays with peanuts. It was beautiful. I asked my dear wife what she would like to eat. She also wanted a hot Sunday sundae with peanuts. Bingo. Two identical things we're in. So I, so I get in the queue at McDonald's. I order the hot fruit sundaes with peanuts, extra large, thank you very much. Um, two of them, I'm holding two hot Sundays. sundaes. I walk back to the car. I trip by the car and I fall. I managed to save this Sunday, but this one, there is a little bit on the floor. And it is a little bit cracked. So I'm sitting in the car with this slightly cracked one and this perfectly formed one. And I'm sitting in the car, and just as we go into the house, Tom just says, oh, I feel really bad that you broke one of your Sundays. And, and I said to him straight off the bat, without even thinking, oh, I think Emma will be okay with it. <laughs> and straight off to me, he said, hey, and he laughed, thinking I was joking. I was not joking. <laughs> and he said, oh, let me, let me ask, what, why is that Emma's? I said, well, honestly, no word of a lie. Emma, I always remember what I'm carrying for Emma. It goes in my right hand because Emma's always right. That's the way I remember it. So Emma's always right. We always had different sugars in our teas so Every time i blow like, this one's Emma's. So obviously, this was in this hand. I fell, it broke. It seemed perfectly fine in my mind. And he just sort of stopped me at the door and he said, hey, listen, I wonder, I just wonder whether that might be pretty selfish and whether you might want to think about preferring your wife rather than you. So I trundled in the door. <laughs> but as I spent more and more time in the States, I realized, oh, how kind of the Lord to give me people that are not afraid of me, but are too willing to actually help me see cream cheese on my face. Otherwise, I would have been carrying on, still would have been giving to the Sundays, wouldn't have had a blind clue that that might be a problem. Honestly, wouldn't have even thought about it. Our sin seems obvious to everybody else, but not us, right? I remember back on again in the States and it got to the end of the year and we had done all right with money. We tried to save money as best as we can. And one thing I hated doing in America was tipping. So I never did it. I'm English, we don't tip. What do you mean? It wasn't that good. So I'd go to places, and no, I'm not tipping. And We went on this holiday at the end of the year, and uh, there was these horses. Do you remember the horse rides? So we paid for these horse rides for, for Emma and some ladies to go on. But I wasn't very impressed with the horse Emma was on. It looked like the one that needed to be shot any um, anytime soon. So she goes on this ride, and, uh, and my friend says to me, hey, listen, I think when they come back, we should really tip them, because they've done a good job. And I'm like, I'm not tipping. It was rubbish. The horse was rubbish. isn't it? And he stopped me and he said, listen, he said, talk to me about why you never tip. I said, well, you know, I don't think the horse is very good for a start, but also I need to be a steward with the money I've got. I need to honour the Lord and we haven't got tons. And so I want to make sure that we're positioning ourselves well and wisely before the Lord, because that's how I'm going to lead my family. And he said, yeah, I see that. But have you ever considered that maybe, and he said, look, I might be wrong, but have you ever considered that you may be being greedy? You are my friend. <laughs> greedy? What do you mean greedy? And I said, greedy? My, no, I've never considered that. I'm just wisely stewarding my money before the Lord. But thanks for you know, bringing it up. And, but I went away and prayed about it. And within days, I was convicted that, oh my goodness, I have, what I have been thinking all my life as wise stewardship is actually greed. I'm thinking about myself and trying to control all my money. I'm not trusting the Lord with it. I'm just trying to look after myself. I was really convicted that creed is a challenge in my life. Again, something I'd never seen. Never, ever seen. You may think, oh, but that was 20 years ago. I bet it doesn't happen anymore. Yeah, I'll give you a clue. January. (laughs) Last month. (laughs) A faithful brother came to me and said, hey, listen. I've just noticed, just a thought. I've noticed in the way you speak in this environment, I wonder if it really honors the Lord. I thank God I have people in my life that are willing to ask those questions rather than fear me and see me walk around with cream cheese on my face, but never mention it. My friends, we need others in our lives. Given the subtle, deceitful, and blinding effects of sin, we need others. And the truth is, they need you. They need you. They need you not to fear them. They need you to actually speak truth to them and be willing to ask them questions. Paul Tripp says it this way in his wonderful book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands. He says, since each of us still has sin remaining in us, we will all have pockets of spiritual blindness. Our most important vision system is not our physical ears. We can be physically blind and live quite well. But when we are spiritually blind, we cannot live as God intended. Physically blind people are always aware of their deficit, and spend much of their lives learning to live with its limitations. But the Bible says we can be spiritually blind, and yet think we can see quite well. Does that ring a bell? We even get offended when people act as if they see us better than we see ourselves. That line just stings a little bit, doesn't it? The reality of spiritual blindness has important implications for the Christian community. Hebrews 3, which talks about deceitfulness of sin, clearly teaches that personal insight is the product of community. I need you in order to really see and know myself. Otherwise, I will listen to my own arguments, believe my own lies, and buy into my own delusions. All my ways will appear right to me in my eyes, yet my self-perception is as accurate as a carnival mirror. If I'm going to see myself clearly, I need you to hold the mirror of God's word in front of me. That is provoking. It is mature. It is biblical running for the glory of the Lord. We need others to help us. We need others to fear us less and love us more. And when we're loving people more, we don't go to people and say, hey, listen, guess what? I've seen you lying. Liar! <laughs> no. We say, hey, listen, have you noticed? I just got a question for you. I need you to work it out. But here's a question. I've noticed quite a few times that you're saying something I, I'm not sure is true. Are you aware of that? Or, hey, listen, I want to make you aware and I want to love you enough just to say, "I wonder if, I wonder if gossip is something that you're doing. Because you talk a ton about other people and I'm not sure... They know you're talking about them. If we never get to that stage because we're Australian and private, we will never be tough muttering for Jesus because people will be walking around everywhere with cream cheese and no one wants to say. That is not loving. That's actually cruel. We need to be helping one another and we need their help. Likewise, in being renewed in the spirits of our minds, it can be hard sometimes to work out what does the Bible really teach me on these things and I need to I understand what I need to put off, but what am I meant to put on and then when we do try and put it on, we need others to pray for us and hold us accountable and encourage us and cheer us on don 't we It can be hard to change so what you realize is this whole process of change needs to be done in community. Listen, how am I going and faithfully positioning myself in my group for Growth. When was the last time you said to your group, hey guys, is there any cream cheese on my face? Question three How am I going and faithfully using my words in my group? This is about now where you think, man, I like the opening question, but these are getting worse. How am I going and faithfully using my words in my group? There is no doubt in Scripture that our words matter. And they matter because our words are powerful, they are strong. They can do incredible things for good or for damage. So, James chapter 3, verses 4 through 6, James tries to help us see how powerful our words are. He says, Look at the ships. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life. He wants to help us see. listen, your tongue is powerful. It's like a rudder. It's like a blaze. It can do amazing things for good or for evil. It's why Proverbs 18.21 says, death and life are in the power of the tongue. Our words matter. And so when it comes to your group, How are you going in using them? See, in our race, we need each other and we need each other's words. And it's in Ephesians 4.29 where Paul actually explains to us how are we to use these words in the midst of our race. This is what he says. He says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear wonderful, God-driven, God-announced counsel. In the context of your group, in the context of your race, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. Let no talk that is going to be detrimental or destructive or divisive. Let it have no place amongst you. You know in the original Greek, that word no, it's not just no, it's no! That is literally the way it is written. It's like, no, don't do this! You will cause all sorts of issues in your groups and in your church. Let no corrupting talk come every day out of your mouth. But only that which is good for building up, strengthening, encouraging, edifying. And you know, as you consider the race that we're all in, and you think through the race then of how much we need each other, you realise what an important part our words play. See, in Scripture, we all know as Christians that God is always with us, don't we? We know that theologically. We know that there's nowhere I can go, to the heavens or to, or to the depths of my grave, that he's not present. He's present everywhere. And so Philippians 1 verse 6, he says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He's helping us see God's grace is always present. He's always at work. He's always with you. He always will be. He will never leave you or forsake you. We know that theologically. And yet, in our moment of need, we can somehow become painfully unaware of this. Unaware. We can start to think in our suffering so easily, we can lose sight of the Lord and think, He's not even there. He's left me. I'm alone. We can start to struggle with sin and we can so easily lose hope. I'm never going to change. It's just not going to be possible. I may as well just pull over to the side of the race, man. I'm going to be leaving it soon. We can so easily in our battle with past sin lose sight of the cross and start to run with condemnation all the time. We can so easily become tired and weary in the midst of our lives and lose perspective of what am I even trying to do? And so here's what God does. He puts you in a small group. People who know you. People who are running with you. And when you then are struggling, he he puts somebody in your life that can bring grace to the hearer when you need it most. Comforting grace to the one who is suffering. Sanctifying grace to the one who is struggling with present sin. Justifying grace to the one who is struggling with past sin. And sustaining grace to the one who is weary. Friends around us that are simply saying, keep going. It'll be okay. God is present. He is with you. Look at this. Don't believe the lies. Hang on to truth. We need Jesus in that moment, do we not? But we need somebody to be Jesus to us. So what God does is he puts us together with other believers and say, hey, listen, when you're running, it's going to get difficult. You're going to get demotivated. You're going to get distracting. So make sure you're in out to one another. One of the things I love about this picture is you can see the guys at the top and here's what they're doing. Keep going. You can do it. We made it. You made it as well. Come on up. They're encouraging, they're helping, they're aiding. We are called by God to use our words accordingly. What an opportunity group becomes then, don't you think? Your words are powerful. So how are you going with faithfully using your words in your group? What about WhatsApp? Are you faithfully using them to encourage or something else? How are you using them for the glory of the Lord? Then finally, question four, just very quickly. How am I going in being ongoingly committed to my group? How are you going at being ongoingly committed to your group? See, for everything that I have said in this message to become a reality, if you ain't committed to it, none of it works. None of it. If we're going to actively play our parts in the care for our group, here's where it begins. You go. You're actually there. You're actually there to see where people are at and see where they need help so that you can actually reach out hands and help. If you're not even there, you haven't even got a clue what's really going on. And they don't have a clue about you either. If we're not actually a part of our group, if we're not faithfully positioning ourselves to grow, then people just don't even see us enough to see the cream cheese. And you don't see them enough to see the cream cheese, so you have nothing to say to them. If we're not actually faithfully using our words in our group, or if we want to faithfully use our words in our group, then commitment becomes vital. Otherwise, we're never actually there to deliver any words for good or ill. My friends, the wheels totally come off on everything I said if we're not committed to a group. The whole thing doesn't work. And I would argue that this race, given what it is, the reality of what it is, is too hard for you not to be committed to other believers. You need them. And they need you. And so if we really love them, and we really recognize the need, we commit. We don't date our group. We commit to our group. We're there. We give ourselves to it exactly what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10 verse 23 to 25. He says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. His whole premise is, listen, you are in a race. It's going to be hard. It's not going to be easy. Don't stop meeting together. You're going to get tired and distracted. You're not going to want to meet. You're going to want to do something else. You're going to want to stay in and watch Netflix. Don't do that. Come because you need to be around these people and they need you. I you know, not been a pastor for 20 years. Here's just a little inside secret. The majority of the time when people are struggling with the Lord and with each other, they're barely attending group. Nearly every single time. It is rare you speak to somebody who's thriving in group but struggling with the Lord and in their relationships. The two are often going hand in hand. So they start to feel I just I just don't feel like really clicking in this church and I just don't feel like I've got any friends and It's just really hard. Okay, how's your relationship with Jesus? Oh, it's struggling, it's struggling, but I don't know what to do. Okay, how are you going in group? I don't go. Yeah. It sounds like you're in a tough mud and you're at the bottom and you're suddenly feeling very alone, but you've never been around the other guys. You're just trying to do the obstacle course by yourself. No wonder you're struggling. You need others to be cheering you on, others to help you with your growth, others to care for you, others to be involved. That's how we spur one another on to love and good deeds. Who is spurring you on? Oh, no one. Got a group. It's just like, let's do this. There's always a plan A. Is there a plan B? No, the Bible is plan A, plan B, plan C. It talks about being committed. They're not by words. They're right here in Hebrews 10. Wrestle with that. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. Wrestle with Scripture, not me. He's clearly saying, you must run with others. We will never be able to run this race well by ourselves. If we are truly going to run this race well, then quite simply, we need each other. And that's why Sovereign Grace Church, unapologetically, is a church built with small groups. We do it deliberately. It's not a Sovereign Grace ism, it's a Bible ism. We understand that we've been created by God and we're creatures and he knows what's best and he tells us what is best is running in groups so we run in groups. So, if small group relationships are so important to our race, then how are you and I going in playing our parts in the building of our small groups? Listen, if you're already smashing it, That's awesome. And honestly, I I, I trust that would-be many people. They're already doing great in all these things. Well done. I am really pleased, rejoicing with you. Keep doing it. But if you, like me, are aware of areas that may need to change in this, then may grace-motivated change begin. Grace-motivated. Grace-motivated. Grace motivated because no matter how good at this or bad at this, it's not like God's looking on either tutting or smiling. We can't just put this on as a plate and think, yeah, I must attend my small group, must give everything to my small group. No, no. When it comes to our relationship with Jesus, you can let that plate go and he still loves you and accepts you. It's grace motivated. But it's motivated nonetheless because we realize I'm in that race. And those guys around me that I've been put in group with, they're in that race as well. And I need them and they need me. So give yourself to your group. Give yourself to the word. Give yourself to one another. In this race, we need each other. So look into Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Would we link arms and run together for the glory of God? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, you are so gracious to us in the way that you do not expect us to run by ourselves. Lord, it could be so tempting now at the end of this message to evaluate our groups, to evaluate those around us and over lunch discuss where they're not cutting it. But I pray that we would run from that evil desire and instead assess our own hearts before you. How am I going in this race? How am I going in my care and growth and commitment? And Lord, where change is needed, would we look to you, the founder and perfecter of our faith? You are the one that designed it that we would need you. What that meant is we would also need we. We would need others around us to be you to us, to help us, and they need us to be you to them. So Lord, give us grace as we look to you, as we marvel at you, would we run well together, or oh, did it all be for your glory?